The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. Let's um, begin in Matthew chapter 5. And of course, we're in that section that's known as the uh, Beatitudes. What does Beatitude mean, by the way? Blessed, yeah. It, it, it sounds like it's formed on our word beautiful. Uh, but at any rate, um, it's that uh, Latin root for blessed. And uh, of course, that's how these Beatitudes read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these, um, these of course, have captivated the attention of the followers of Yeshua from the day that he uttered them. You can find a lot of information from the earliest church fathers up through our times. A whole volumes written just on these verses. They are in that genre of wisdom sayings, of those pithy kind of uh, short but uh, very deep and important sayings. And it, we're trying to unpack them from, well, from a couple of things. From having learned them maybe since the time you were young and just being able to roll them off more or less when not thinking about them, uh, all the way to how do, what, what was it uh, received like when he taught them uh, to the crowds and to his disciples? Was this something that was familiar in their ears? Uh, was it something that was new to them? I, I would surmise that it was not something unfamiliar to them, but not exactly the way they were used to, to, to being taught. What is it that when you think of the whole of the Beatitudes, is there anything in them that strike you as as significant or, or different than other teachings? Pardon me? Unreasonable? Okay, meaning uh, unreasonable in the sense of impossible to carry out? Okay, yeah, all right. The bar is set a little higher than what you think you could maybe uh, get over? Uh, yeah, I mean, the question is, did uh, Yeshua just speak these as we have just read them, or did he start out with "Blessed are those, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven," and then stop and say, "And this is what I mean by poor in spirit, and uh, this is what I mean by kingdom of heaven." Uh, that's a very good question. My suspicions are is that they were probably delivered pretty much the way we have them here. It was not uncommon for teachers to have these kinds of uh, be known for these kinds of sayings that were short, to the point, that would cause uh, their students to uh, ponder them, saying, you know, go away remembering them because they're short enough, but then saying, well, what exactly did he mean by that? And using that as uh, 
as the material, so to speak, for their ongoing meditation and study. So it, it wouldn't surprise me that basically they were as we have them here. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't say. If he did have commentary in between, I sure wish it would have been preserved for us so that uh, then we could just sit and read it, right? And uh, then, then discuss it. We're removed far enough from the time and culture and language that we have to try to figure out, okay, how do, how do we really understand these? What does it mean for us? And, and now I realize as I look here at my, uh, at my computer, why my text did not match what I had memorized. I had a different, I had the ESV, uh, I was reading the ESV rather than the New American Standard. But it was pretty close. I just, I, because we've, we memorized it as a family and, and there were certain things that we would constantly mix up. And uh, one of them is in, um, in verse, verse 11, uh, we would always want to put falsely at the end of the clause and the NSV puts it at the first of the clause. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all manner of evil against you. And ESV puts it at the end where, where, we, where it seems more natural for us. But at any rate, um, yeah, I, I, I would say that probably they were terse um, wisdom type sayings that a teacher of the stature of Yeshua would have given. Ken? Uh, yeah, the question is, to a Jewish audience who were given over a lot to the particulars of the law of the Torah, particularly impurities and Sabbath uh, regulations and those kinds of things, how would they have uh, how would they have received or how would they have heard this message, which centers so much on humility and meekness and gentleness and so forth? Uh, well, first of all, remember that what we know of first century Judaisms, we know from the teachers, not from the people. In other words, we have the writings of the rabbis. But we know that the people, the, the masses, were not always in, in lockstep with the rabbis. Uh, we know this because Yeshua himself gained a very quick and large following. Even by the time of, of Pesach, in the year that he was crucified, they were the leaders were concerned about how they could go about apprehending him for fear of the people. So the the people were not in any way opposed to his message. And and we should also say that there are plenty there's plenty of evidence amongst the the rabbinical literature that remains that this was not an unknown message amongst other rabbis as well. They. Uh, they recognized how easy it was to fall into a rigid, unbending approach to life through, through the Torah. And so they did call for humility and they called for mercy and they called for leniency. Uh, in fact, Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, was known for uh, leniency in his decisions. He was the head of the Sanhedrin. Uh, one which comes to mind is that up until the time of Gamaliel, if a uh, if a husband went off to war and didn't return, they it was very difficult for her to receive permission to uh, marry. There was it was tough, and it was hard on her, and uh, to remarry, even though because her husband was missing in action. How long do you wait until you know? Well, they they made it extremely difficult. Gamaliel lessened that. 
and and said if it seems clear that the that the husband had actually died in battle, even though there wasn't clear evidence. I mean, he he was more lenient towards women even in in many things. So it's not an it's not an uncommon message amongst the rabbis. But I think what we re, what we hear from Yeshua is that he clearly tells us that the the leaders had put burdens upon the people's shoulders, and the and the leaders were not willing to help the. He wasn't even saying so much that it's wrong for you to put burden on their shoulders. He says, you, you lay all these burdens on their shoulders and you won't lift one finger to help them carry it. In other words, if you're going to place burdens on people's shoulders, shouldn't you show mercy by helping them carry it? If you think it's a valid burden that they should carry, shouldn't you make it as easy as possible? You know, it's like, you ma- it's like making a saddle fit. If, if you're going to put a saddle on an animal, at least you should make it fit. And uh, so, yeah, clearly there was a burden that the people were carrying that was, and I think uh, the same thing occurs even today in some forms of Judaism. Uh, the question is, wouldn't, wouldn't it have uh, divided the Pharisees and the scribes from the common people? Um, yes and no. Uh, it was a bit of a two-party system, if I could use that term. Uh, to get into Qumran, to get into the Qumran society... I mean, you had to be a Marine plus a little bit more. In other words, you had to have uh, you had to have pretty tough skin. I mean, it, it was that, that that was the few and and the chosen that got into into Qumran. As far as the other main parties, there was the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There were a few other smaller ones that were more radical in some ways. But and how did you get into the Sadducees? You had to be born in essentially. I mean, you could. You could opt in, but essentially the, the Sadducees were the keepers of the priesthood and, and the keepers of the temple and the priestly uh, line of things. And so they were the aristocracy. You couldn't get in if you were neither born in or, or had some, some power uh, because it, they were the wealthy. On the other hand, the Pharisees were the common people. They were the working class. They were you know just the common people. So... A lot of the common people sided with the Pharisees against the Sadducees. You remember that uh, somewhat comical uh, notice in uh, Tractate Sukkot where the high priest uh, trips and dumps. He's doing the water ceremony. You know, he's pouring the water out uh, on the Temple Mount in this water ceremony that happens at Sukkot. And he tripped and knocked over one of the buckets or he stumbled and lost one of the buckets and the water fell all over and everybody standing around pelted him with their etrogs. You know, all the people standing around the top of the... just Everybody just started throwing their, their etrogs at him. Um, you know, I mean, the Pharisees were not all that were not all that happy with the Sadducees and vice versa. So, you know, it, it, when you think of the first century, you, you can't think of a kind of a one happy family uh, situation. Uh, did Yeshua's words divide? Yes. He even said so himself. Uh, that's because his message was a radical message. It was a message that in some ways hit at the very heart of Judaism's of his day and still does, and that is that there is some special favor given to Jewish ethnicity. And it wasn't that Yeshua in any way was demeaning Jewish ethnicity or, not, uh, or that he was teaching that it wasn't, uh, had, did not have enduring importance. He, he taught that it did. I mean, he made it very clear that he came to the lost sheep of Israel in our gospel, right? In the gospel of Matthew. On the other hand, he made those statements like in 8.11 of Matthew 
Many shall come from the north and the south and the east and the west, and they will sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, he's talking to the people that are in charge. You know, you could hear, almost hear them saying, wait a minute, who died and left you in charge? How come you get to say who eats at the table? You know, we're in charge. So he, you know, or, or he would say to the leaders, uh, God is going to take, he does it with parables, right? You know, the, the parable of vineyard. Uh, he sends his, uh, his workers, they kill them. He sends his, hire, his best uh, man, they, they kill him. He finally sends his son, they kill him. And, uh, and then what, what's the outcome? Well, that the vineyard is going to be taken away from them. And he says that, that, that it will be taken away and given to a nation doing the deeds, doing the proper deeds. Well, I mean, that doesn't bode very well when you're talking to the leadership, Right? So, yeah, his message was definitely radical. It did divide. It did open up uh, the covenant as it was supposed to, to far more than just those who were resting upon their, uh, their lineage as their way in. And that probably was the most radical thing. And, of course, Paul took that and, and ran with it. And the result is us. Here, here we are. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 it is a radical message. All right, let's uh, look at verse 5 on page 149. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, those of us that don't have personalities that are gentle, this always digs at us. I, you know, I think everyone has some gentleness. Some have a lot more than others. Uh, when you read the biographies of people who've made uh, history, you find some people that weren't always, you know, they were made out of per- some pretty tough stuff. <laughs> it isn't that there can't be both, and we want to talk about that. In some of the early manuscripts, by the way, verse 5 is found after verse 3 rather than in the order that we have it. So, meaning verse 5 and verse 4 are switched. Tobias Locks thinks this represents a more original order since the poor in spirit of verse 3 would be more naturally followed by gentle or meek. While it is true that the two verses seem naturally to go together, this also gives a reason why scribes might have rearranged the order. Thus, it is better to stay with the traditional verse order, which also has the greater weight of manuscript evidence. So, you know, generally speaking, when we come up against these textual issues, one of the questions we ask is, can we discover a reason why the scribes would have changed it? Why would some manuscripts have it one way and some manuscripts have it another? Obviously, some scribe along the way changed it, and then it got copied. What would be the reason that a scribe would change it? And if we can discover a good reason why a change would be made, then we can say, well, then we can see which one was the change and which one was the original. Generally speaking, in textual criticism, the more difficult reading is, is presumed to be the more original reading. The, you know, unless it's ridiculously difficult. I mean, you know, lines left out or words left out or that kind of thing. But you understand what I'm saying? The more difficult reading is generally going to be made smooth by scribes. Scribes are going to look at a difficult and say, what exactly does that mean? You know, that's kind of hard to understand. Let me make it more understandable. So they're going to change it. Meaning the more difficult reading is oftentimes the more original reading. And so uh, the order of verses, I think, should stay the way they are, and it has good textual evidence at any rate. Now, what about this word gentle? The New American Standard Bible uses gentle along with the Web Bible. Here, it translates the Greek praus, 
which has a basic meaning of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's importance. Thus, most other English translations use the English word meek. Yeah, humble, humble is, is in that uh, word also, but okay, lowly, uh, yeah, that's the, AS, uh, AS, or the uh, new, new AS, right? New American Standard, yeah. Um, it's a difficult word to translate. Lowly doesn't necessarily mean humble. You know, you can be lowly and, and be grinding your teeth about it. Well, we find Matthew using this same Greek word in uh, chapter 11, verse 29. The words of Yeshua, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, praus, meek, and humble in heart. So there we do have the word coupled with humble. Um, as well as the quote from Zechariah 9.9, which Matthew uses in chapter 21.5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle. Same word, or meek, and mounted on a donkey. Now, that's not usually the way the king comes. You know, the king comes with all kinds of uh, uh, entourage and trumpets and uh, being carried and so forth and so on. So, that maybe means not trumpeting his greatness. Not overly impressed with his own importance. Yes? Mm-hmm. Careful. Careful with you. Yeah, caring with you. Right. Yeah, the comments made in, in Matthew 11:29 that he's saying, you, you're, you, can, you can take my yoke upon you because I'm not going to throw it at you. I'm not going to chain it onto your neck. You know, I'm, I'm going to be gentle as, I, as, as we work together. Uh, meaning, yeah, caring. Uh, it, could, it could have that connotation, but normally the word doesn't. Normally the word means... and. I would suggest in that text, in 1129, and obviously we'll work more on it when we get there, I, I would uh, think that it means, the picture is that of a farmer, right? Okay. The farmer wants to get his field plowed. Does he really care about the, the ox? Does he really care about, I mean, you know, and somebody who's a ruthless farmer just says, you know, just works the, the poor animal to death, and then when, when that animal is gone, he just gets another one. In other words, all he's thinking about is the bottom line. All he's thinking about is what he gets out of it. On the other hand, someone who's meek is not concerned about himself. He's concerned about others. And so when he says, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek or gentle and humble, it means I'm going to be uh, concerned about you in your taking this yoke upon yourself. So I, I think that it works kind of both ways. So their caring and meek maybe go together. Yeah, the King James Version says, for my yoke is easy. Yeah, yeah, and my burden is light. Some have suggested that the Greek word means fits well. It doesn't chafe. You know, yeah. My, my father grew up on the farm, and uh, uh, he actually did a lot of work with horses. Uh, and uh, he's told, he told me a lot of stories about how, what he learned from horses growing up on the farm and uh, yoking them together. And, uh, you know, if you had a pair of horses that got along with each other, uh, how much more work you got done than if you had a pair of horses that that hated each other, (laughs) you know, and you were fighting that all day. Or you had one horse that was lazy and another horse that was energetic and you could never keep them going straight, you know. One wouldn't pull, the other would. And, uh, you know, all kinds of probably... If we were living in the agriculture of the uh, ancient Near East, uh, we, when we read uh, the yoke of the commandments, 
or the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, which is found in the, in the liturgy. And when Yeshua says, my yoke, it means taking my, uh, uh, my halacha, being my disciple, following in my footsteps. But he says, my yoke is not difficult. And you wonder, uh, we could get way off on this, and we'll have to wait till we get to 11 to do this. It's, you know, Matthew is just f- chuck full of, uh, of, of very rich things. And, of course, Matthew 11 is, is one of our favorites. We've all memorized that verse probably. But um, it, 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 it could well mean uh, that my halacha is, is not so difficult, and he may have in mind exactly what God himself wrote through Moses, Uh, in the Torah when he says this word is not in heaven that you have to you know work to get it or out in the depths of the sea that you have to go out to get it it's near you it's in your mouth you can do this in other words the Torah is not supposed to be difficult in the sense of making your life miserable that's not what it's about and Yeshua I think was bringing that sense of Torah back and that's why you know we have to be so careful as we're kind of pioneering, we're not really pioneering because the path, what, what we're doing is we're following a path that has been overgrown for 2,000 years. Okay? You know, there's large junipers that have grown up. There's, uh, there's all kinds of uh, brush and all kind, we can hardly see the edges of the road. So it's not like we don't, we know where the road is, but we're taking our chainsaws and our machetes and we're taking it step by step. And we have to be so careful when we do that that we don't fall back into that trap of, of laying burdens upon people. And I think that's, you know, as I was studying this, that it reminded me how, uh, how this is so important for us in the stage of, of uh, community life that we are in. That we listen very carefully to the Master's words. He has a lot of wisdom for us here in terms of walking Torah because that's what he's asking his disciples to do. He's saying you, you are to obey the Torah. He, I mean, we're coming to the passage, Right in 17 through 20 of this chapter, where he brings in the fact that he didn't come to destroy the, the Torah and the prophets. Why would anyone have suggested that he did? He said, don't let anybody tell you that I've destroyed the, the Torah and the prophets. Well, who was going around saying that this man, Yeshua from, uh, of Nazareth, is teaching people not to obey the Torah? Well, because he was saying some of what the rabbis have done is, is burdensome and it ought not to be done. And for, for them, the words of the sages... And the words of Moses were oftentimes intermingled to the point where they were not differentiated. So if you say, we're not, you know, we're going to follow Yeshua, which means we're not going to do what Rabbi such and such told us we should do. And if Rabbi such and such was a major authority, that sounds like you're disregarding the Torah. This is an aside, interesting conversations I have on a, not, not regular, but periodic basis with a chaplain at, uh, out at McNeil Island, which is a, a prison, security prison uh, here in our state. And uh, he's a Roman Catholic, Father Sus. And uh, there's a group of Messianics out there that meet. So he's constantly calling me for halakhic decisions. Yeah. And uh, they put in on their request that they needed to have two days at the beginning of Passover and two days at the end of Passover as Sabbaths. Well, we all know that the first day of unleavened bread is the Sabbath and the last day is a Sabbath, according to Torah. But the extra days have been added by the rabbis. So I said, well, as Messianics, we don't give that much. We don't give that kind of authority to the to the rabbis. We, we, we like them. We read them. We oftentimes follow their traditions, but we don't put them on the same authority as 
as the Bible. And he said, well, I can understand that. I said, you know, the rabbinic Judaism is kind of like Roman Catholicism. <laughs> and I said, because, because rabbinic Judaism says that the, oral, that the teaching of the rabbis has, has equal authority with the written Bible. And isn't that what the Roman Catholic Church says, that your canons um, uh, from, uh, from the Pope on down have uh, a ruling authority? And he said, yeah, absolutely. That's, I said, well, we stand outside of that tradition and we would say that the written word, the scriptures themselves, are the basic authority. So frankly, if you don't want to give these guys the, the other two days off, you don't have to, you know. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, dialogue we get into on a, on a regular basis. All right, so Peter also uses this word meek. Uh, he says in 1 Peter 3, 4, he is admonishing in this context, he's admonishing women not only to adorn themselves with outward beauty. And he writes, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of gentle, there's our word, and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So we have the word combined with humble, and we have the word combined with quiet. And maybe when the word is put with these, it tells us, it gives us shades of what is meant. Uh, someone, someone who is not overly impressed by, a sen- by a, the sense of his own importance. Meaning what? He's not constantly blowing his own horn in terms of his, uh, his reputation. Uh, he, he's not... Uh, constantly telling you how good he is and and doing things that uh, focus attention only upon him. We say then that the word generally has the sense of humble, meek, gentle, and even submissive. These positive qualities do not envision weakness of any sort, but rather stress a response of faith in the power of God who controls the events of life. It may also be the case that... You understand what I mean by that? How can you be meek? How can you be humble? It's when you have a true faith that God is in control. You know, a wife is able to submit to her husband even when he's disobedient to the word because she's submitting to the Lord. She believes that the Lord is in control. And she's able, therefore, to not worry and concern herself uh, with what the outcome will be if she submits. Now, I, I always have to say this. I don't mean by that submitting to abuse and that kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Uh, but I'm talking about... Uh, uh, submission in general. We can do the same thing. So, you know, sometimes we're put in situations where uh, we really have no way to make a difference in the outcome of a given circumstance. Well, we can do one of two things. We can humbly uh, trust God that he will work things out, or we can convetch and complain and, and, and be a, a thorn in everybody's flesh. Well, the, the meek and humble person is one who has a deepening faith in God that says, okay, I can be quiet about this and let God do his work. I can watch him uh, accomplish his plans. It may also be the case that our word in this context has some sense of the powerless. Those who have been marginalized by the ruling authorities and who are unable in and of themselves to affect any change in their situation. We discover that Yeshua is regularly on the side of those who are uh, impoverished by way of power. They have no ability to change their situation and they're being misused or used uh, by the general uh, population. You know, you know what I'm talking about. People that are, that are at, a, at a great disadvantage and have no way in and of themselves to pull themselves up, at least not immediately. And we see Yeshua constantly confronted 
by those kinds of people, right? The leper. I mean, think of think about the think about the Israelite society and the, the laws of purity. If you were a leper, where, where were you? You hadn't. What could you do? You were you were powerless. You could not affect. You could not uh, fulfill what you would want to do as a husband, as as a father. I mean, it was out of your hands. And we see Yeshua reaching out to that person. We see him reaching out to those who were the the dregs of society who were turning from that, right? The prostitute, uh, the woman uh, who washes his feet, and so forth and so on. His his actions throughout the gospel teach his words. Blessed are the meek. And he tells us that, but he shows us that. When such people commit themselves to the protection and power of the Almighty, they evidence a meek spirit in the midst of being persecuted. And as noted above, the other two times that a word is used, it is descriptive of Yeshua himself. Thus, our Master stands as the model for us of meekness. And all the more so. You know, um, I, I, I guess I don't know how to really put this into words, but I've thought of this time and again. You know, somebody that really is kind of a... Excuse me, I'm not, I, I know this is really unpolitic, politically incorrect, but someone who really is a loser... Okay, I'm talking about just a lazy lozzle, doesn't care, just gets nothing done. It's just, uh, you know, I don't know, just is marking time in life. It, you know, it, that person can be meek, no doubt about it, and you can see that meekness in. But when you have somebody that has been decorated for his accomplishments, and someone who has really done something of great value for himself and for humanity. And, uh, you know, there's buildings named after him and there's streets named after him and there's towns named after him. And then he's meek. It really shows forth. Now think about Yeshua. I mean, he was the, he's the creator. I mean, he stands head and shoulders above that person. And so surely his meekness would shine forth. You would expect... I mean, you know, you think of the men on the way to Emmaus and they said, did our hearts not burn within us as we were talking together? There was something about this guy that was different. And and people followed him all over and they were hanging on his words. I mean, if he had been in our times, he could have you know, filed for an 800 number and, uh, and gone on 700 Club and become an overnight millionaire. I mean, he had that charisma. He had that ability because he was endowed with such wisdom and such understanding of people. And yet, he, he was known as what? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He, didn't, he never wrote a book, right? <laughs> he never, uh, he didn't have, apparently, he didn't have his own home. He never married. He never had children. There were, uh, during his lifetime, he was, uh, he was eventually despised to the point where he was put to death. So, it, the, again, the, the mystery of the Incarnation comes upon us when we think of Yeshua as the model of humility. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com.
If the chiastic arrangement that we have mentioned earlier of the Beatitudes, and if you want to look back at that, it's on page 146. If the way these are arranged has warrant, then the gentle or the meek statement here in verse 5 is parallel to peacemakers. This would give the picture that those who are gentle do not have it in their hearts to overpower those who stand in opposition to them, but who in putting their trust in God seek to make peace. Once again, this does not mean that the gentle shy away from speaking the truth and even speaking the truth with vigor, as modeled by our own master. But it would mean that the character of the gentle is such that peace is their goal, that is, the winning of those who oppose them over to the truth rather than subjugation. My heart is not rejoicing when, my, when I can grind my heel in the face of my enemy. My heart rejoices when my enemy has come to peace with me. Why? Because I'm meek. I'm not out for my own uh, scoreboard victory. I'm out for the victory of others. So it, it may be that our, our arrangement still works. Maybe I'm forcing it. I don't know. I'm trying my best to make it fit. All right. Yes. Chiastic is basic. Maybe I should use the word menorah structure. If you think of a menorah, in this case a Hanukkah, because we happen to have nine components, if you start with uh, the first verse over here and put the last verse over here, and then work your way in to the middle, and the middle verse then would be the one that gets the most importance. And so, if you if you look at maybe you don't have, I know you were missing some pages, but if you look at page 146. We have those poor in spirit, that's verse 1, or verse 3. Those persecuted as disciples of Yeshua, that's verse 11. So we keep working our way in. And when we come to the middle, those who show mercy is the middle part which would get the most emphasis. So that's what I mean by chiastic. Yes, right. Yeah, the comments made that it, it feels more like uh, back to our earlier discussion that we started with, whether or not Yeshua just spoke these as we have them or whether it's more an outline that, that he gave one and then an explanation. The reason why it doesn't surprise me that he would do that is because if you read the, the rabbinic literature, there's a lot of this kind of thing in the rabbinic literature. For, 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 yeah, for instance, in Perkei Avot, which are the sayings of the fathers, it's not un... I mean, the sayings of the fathers, which are the things that they are best known for. They are the sayings that, that kind of stuck with their name. They sound like this. They sound very much like this. So it doesn't surprise me that um, uh, Yeshua would have said this. And, and then if you read the Proverbs, you have, the, you have many of these. Blessed is the, you know. And so, so he, may, he may be giving that kind of wisdom, proverbial kind of teaching in short, succinct ways because they weren't writing it down and they weren't recording it on a digital recorder like we're doing tonight. Um, they, they had to remember them. And so uh, they would use these kinds of structures as well to help people remember similar things that went together and worked their way to the middle. All of those things were uh, memnotechnic devices to help the people retain what was being taught. All right. It says, for they shall inherit the earth. We should understand the Greek ge, here translated earth, as the land, uh, even though other commentators would say not. So I think we should understand it, for they shall inherit the land. The promise of possessing the land is regularly tied to obeying the mitzvot. We find this in the second part of the Shema which concludes, so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. In other words, if you will do these things which I command you, and if you will walk in my ways, 
then you will have the land which I promised the fathers. This is based upon the promise made to the fathers as noted in the prayer of Moses, where he's praying in Exodus 32, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. This promise that obedient Israel would inherit the land became a regular motif in the prophets, and particularly in the Psalms. In fact, it seems clear, at least to me, that Yeshua had Psalm 37 in mind as he taught this beatitude, especially verse 11. So note the verses from this psalm. Verse 9, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Verse 11, But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Verse 22, For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. And verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. And finally, verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. So all the way through this psalm, what is inherit the land? It is the blessing which comes upon those who are humble and obedient and righteous. And I think Yeshua is saying the same thing here. Now, I don't deny that the word earth Haaretz in the in, in the in the Hebrew or ge in the Greek can have a more we have to use a modern term global sense. But I, I personally don't think uh, the people in Yeshua's day envisioned the world as a ball. I mean, uh, some would disagree with me on that, but uh, I don't think they 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 had when we say Earth. We have all kinds of visual pictures in our mind that we we saw when we were in third grade, you know, hanging from the ceiling. Uh, with, the, with the solar system, and we've actually seen pictures from uh, out in space. We've seen the Earth, an actual picture of it, right? I mean, you know, and you can go on Google Earth now, and uh, you can zoom in from somewhere out in space, and you can see the whole. So, we when we say when we say Earth, when we say inherit the Earth, we uh, we have a visual picture of that. We have to, re- I think, remember that that in the time of Yeshua, they didn't have that sense in their minds when the word earth was used. More often than not, it means the land of Israel. And if it means beyond the land of Israel, it, it okay, well and good. I don't have any problem with that. Uh, surely it could mean all the inhabited lands. But there is, okay, the comments made, if they were farmers, the earth would mean dirt. But there actually are two different words in the Hebrew um, like there is in English, we have soil. And, and it's kind of some, somewhat interchangeable with earth. Um, but we call them earthworms, not soil worms, you know. And we talk about terra firma. Uh, so, you, but you have adama in the, in the Hebrew, which would be, you know, soil, dirt. And you have ha'aretz, which would be, you know, land. A, a broader perspective. Anyway, when we see all of these the times that are used in the uh, in the Bible, I think the the weight falls upon interpreting this, and and the, the meek will inherit the land. In other words, what has been promised by the prophets is going to be realized by those who are meek. The same motif is found in extra biblical literature as well. In Jubilees thirty two nineteen, we read, "And after that, they that is those who are obedient Israel shall get possession of the whole earth and inherit it forever, or the entire land, if we want to interpret it that way." In Enoch 5.7, we read the same language. The elect shall possess light, joy, peace, and they shall inherit the land. 
Likewise, Didache 3, after exhorting the people to flee from every kind of evil, quotes our verse from Matthew. In, in, instead, be humble, for, quote, the humble shall inherit the earth or the land. So the language of inheriting the land forever is equivalent to having a place in the world to come. How can you inherit the land forever? Forever. Not just for a little time, but forever. Well, that's similar to the language about having a place in the world to come. That's a forever kind of a thing. Uh, note uh, Isaiah 60:21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. This first formed the basis for the rabbinic dictum that, quote, all Israel have a place in the world to come. And it was based upon this verse. Why? Because it says your people... Now, the Hebrew doesn't say will be righteous. The Hebrew says all your people are righteous. So the rabbis interpreted this to mean if you're an Israelite, God considers you righteous. Even if you're not. If you're an Israelite, God says you're righteous. And the righteous will inherit the land forever. While the rabbis of the Mishnah and Bavli considered one's Jewish status as the basis for a place in the world to come, Yeshua here considers one's righteous character as the proof of covenant membership. It's not Israel that will inherit the land. He's, I mean, he could have said that, right? Because the prophets do talk that way. But what did he say? The meek will inherit the land. So now he has put covenant status based upon something uh, slightly different than simple lineage or ethnicity, as was the prevailing teaching of, of the sages. So the meek are the ones who inherit the land, not simply those who could trace their lineage to Jacob. Blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall inherit the land. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In Luke, we have the parallel, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, in Luke, it sounds like he's saying, if you're hungry in this world, you'll have plenty to eat in the world to come. And, and of course, that uh, was, was some of what fueled the monastic mentality that if I give myself to a life of poverty and hunger here, I will be credited greater holiness and given more in the world to come. That, that's not what Luke means. Whatever he means by now. Uh, w what Luke means, and is similar to what Matthew means, because they're both quoting the same <laughs> master, and I think at the same time, uh, but, um, or speaking of the same event, I should say. But what Luke is saying is that there's this eschatological reversal. Now in this life, those who are despised are going to be exalted in the world to come. I mean, that's the basic message. At least one of the basic messages that's come along. And we have, you know, we have this reversal motif throughout Scripture, right? I mean, you have, you have Hannah, right? And she's the despised one. She, she's without children. And uh, you, you, you have... All of the mothers of the, the tribes, you know, all of the matriarchs, it was the low one. It was the one who was despised who ends up rising to the top. And so Hannah says he has exalted the, the horn of his handmaiden. And you have the same thing about Mary, the mother of Yeshua. I mean, here she is despised and considered to be of, of ill repute. And she becomes uh, one who is uh, revered for all eternity. Because God did that. So this reversal thing where, the, where those who have nothing end up having everything is, is some of what uh, Luke is talking about and Matthew as well. Matthew alerts us to the fact that the hunger and thirst is to be understood metaphorically as one soul longing for righteousness. 
This does not necessarily negate physical hunger and thirsting, but focuses attention upon how one's desire for righteousness encompasses one's entire life. As the Proverbs teach, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I, may, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So in other words, if, if my soul has been satisfied, I'll have a correct perspective towards what I eat <laughs> or what I don't have to eat. So it isn't that you have the physical and the non-physical and, the, and they're in two different worlds. That's not the point at all. As Allison Davies uh, the commentators wrote, the righteousness clarifies the object of hunger, which in, they're saying, the Q document remained unspecified. In other words, they're taking Luke as being more, as, as more original. Blessed are you who hunger. It doesn't say what you're hungering for. It does not, however, simply spiritualize a physical need. Even in Luke, which equals, they say, Q, the hungry are men who both outwardly and inwardly are painfully deficient in the things essential to life as God meant it to be, and who, since they cannot help themselves, turn to God on the basis of his promise. So physical hunger and physical thirsting is, uh, is bound together sometimes with soul thirsting and hungering as well. Later, our master will teach that his true disciples seek above all else the kingdom and his righteousness, which is parallel to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Right? He says, don't worry about this, that, and the other. Uh, your father will take care of you, but what? Seek first, of a most importance, his, the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Yes? Okay, we'll talk about that in the next paragraph. Thank you for the segue. That's a good question. No, there, you know, the, the interesting thing is that um, the metaphors all oftentimes break down. That's typical of metaphors. And it may be that the very thing that you've brought up that, listen, when you're when you're hungry and you eat, you quit being hungry, you know. And unless you're fasting for a given purpose, you don't just quit eating so that, wow, now I can be hungry. I mean, it isn't, it isn't your goal to be hungry. In this case, it is your goal to hunger and thirst after righteousness. But what is, what is he saying here? In the same way that, that we naturally work to sustain our physical lives through food and drink, so we are to earnestly and habitually seek after righteousness. We are to follow God's ways in every aspect of our life. In the same way that we recognize we have to have food and drink in order to live, so we have to recognize, and we do recognize, that we must have spiritual food to, to, to sustain our spiritual life. This inner hunger and thirst is not something passive, but active. Indeed, the more we strive to fulfill our inner longing for God's righteousness, the more our hunger increases, right? You know, if you're physically hungry and you have a nice big meal, you say to yourself, oh, I don't think I'll eat again for a week. Of course, you can. You know, the next day you're hungry again. But, uh, but when you feed upon the goodness of God's Word and upon the fellowship that comes with His people, you don't go away saying, well, I don't think I'll have to do that again for a month. No, I mean, what you want, what your spirit longs for is, when can we do this again? The more you feast upon God's righteousness and the more you drink in His righteousness, the hungrier you get for it. Thus, while the physical analogy is clear, the reality is much different. When we eat food, our hunger subsides. But when we feed upon the Word of God and set our hearts to meditate upon His ways, our spiritual hunger increases. And that's what Yeshua is talking about. If you are continually growing and being more and more hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you're going to be blessed. 
This metaphoric use of hunger and thirst to denote a spiritual striving is not something new in the teaching of our Master. The psalmist writes, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You know, the, the metaphor of hungering and thirsting is a perfect metaphor. When you're thirsty, I mean, it's not casually thirsty, but when you're really thirsty, there's nothing like clean, clear water. When, you know, the, the times that I worked at Kaiser Aluminum when I was uh, still in high school, I worked graveyard shift, but I worked in the pot room, and the pot room is where they, the smelting went on for the aluminum. It was hot in there. I mean, you could actually, where I worked up on the, the uh, catwalks of the smelting pots, you weren't allowed to stay up there for more than two minutes at a time. Uh, you went up and came back down and went up and came back down and you uh, rotated through and did the work you had to do. And there was all kinds of toxic gases and so forth coming out of those pots. And you had to wear, you know, I wore two, two layers of clothes and plus protective clothing because you were constantly getting splashed with, with hot metal and different things. I mean, it was hot. It was really hot. And after you would work hard for uh, half of the shift and get ready for uh, to go to lunch, uh, outside of each of the pot rooms, which are long, narrow rooms, in between each one of the rooms was a bay because all of the rooms were cooled, uh, all of the buildings were cooled with water from the ceiling and uh, over the roof, and then it would flow down into these, into these uh, inner courts, so to speak, and be recycled back through. And so, I mean, I can remember, uh, you know, coming down off the catwalk, taking off my out, outer uh, protective coat, and just going out in that bay and just letting the water just, you know, and just, ah, you know, and then waiting and waiting and waiting for the sun to come up. Because you knew when the sun came up, you only had a few hours. You know, when you saw the sun, it gave you new new energy. I'm almost done with another shift. So you, you understand what that feeling is like to, to be satisfied. Um, in, in those, and so hungering and thirsting. When you're that thirsty, and you just stand underneath the dripping water and just let it, you know, not get in your mouth, but all over your face, you know. And we used to do that too, coming off the football field in high school. You know, we would just drench ourselves with water because you were, you know, they didn't let you drink during very much during the practice. So the metaphor is is well understood by us all, I think. That do you ever have that time where you just, you just, there's nothing more than you want to do than just to be alone with God and with His Word and drink it in. Uh, that's what our Master's talking about. Yeah, yeah. the comments made of uh, soldiers who are in the battlefield and the, the, the long time that they spend away from, from essentially everything that they love and especially uh, their family and, and their community of faith. And uh, yeah, I've heard, uh, I've heard many reports from servicemen and women who have uh, said that the chaplain who came by and, and uh, sat down and read, uh, circled people together and read the scriptures was like an unbelievable uh, breath of fresh air for them in their, in their situation. So, hungering and thirsting. Uh, we can consider also the words of Amos. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. So here we have a... A, a clear use of that metaphor. Moreover, a similar metaphor is found among the sages. In the uh, commentary on Exodus, we read, uh, this is uh, on Exodus 15:22 and following, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. What is the meaning of and found no water? The allegorists say they did not find words of Torah which are likened to water. And whence do we know that the words are likened to water? It is said, 
Ho, everyone that thirsts, come you for water. Isaiah 55.1 Again, in another place in Sanhedrin, the Bavli, Rabbi Tachum ben Rabbi Chanelai said, Whosoever starves himself for the sake of the words of Torah in this world, the Holy One, blessed be He, satisfies him in the world to come, as it is said, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the rivers of your delight. Some have suggested that the word righteousness here, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, means justification. That is, the gift of God given on the basis of faith. So some would say what Yeshua is teaching here is, blessed are those who repent of their sin and receive justification from God through Yeshua. Others think it speaks of eschatological vindication of the elect who long for the the scales of justice to be balanced in the end times when the when the wicked will get their comeuppance and the, and the righteous will be vindicated. But it seems clear from the other uses of the word righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, I've listed them there for you, that the word here should have the same meaning, namely right conduct which God requires. Most telling in this regard is 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here righteousness cannot mean justification by God. In other words, something that is forensic or uh, determined in the courts of heaven. Nor eschatological vindication, because the persecution is happening right now. It means that Yeshua's disciples are persecuted because of the righteousness which they have and which others see. It is recon- recognizable behavior of some sort. I think you know, none of us have been... Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know. I'll say it for myself. I've never been persecuted for righteousness' sake. That I know of. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, maybe... Maybe there are people who think very lowly of me, and, and I just don't care. You know, so I mean, there, there, there can be that side of it too. But um, uh, there have been people that are persecuted. But I think there are. We've we've sensed a little bit of that at times. When 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 your heart is simply to do what God says, you're, you're not you're not trying to poke your eye in, your finger in anybody's eye. You're not trying to judge anyone. And and you start deciding that the, that the Shabbat is Shabbat, and you're supposed to do something about it. And you start uh, resting on Shabbat. Is is it amazing to you as it is to me? How many people get upset at you for that? You know, I can remember saying to to, to even close family members, "Why are you concerned if I take a whole day off and spend it with in the things of the Lord? Why does that bother you?" Uh, but it does. <laughs> it really does. And the family members can be fairly cruel in terms of how they, what they think about your desire to simply follow and obey what you believe God is telling his people to do. So I'm sure that the point is, is that if you're doing it, then I should be doing it, or at least you think I should be doing it, and I don't like that kind of pressure. Yes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after right behavior, after doing what pleases God. I mean, there's nothing that bothers organized religion, especially the leaders of organized religion, more than when the common folks say, you know, God wants me to do this and I'm going to do it. When they didn't start the program and they don't have control of it, they don't have... That really bothers them. And uh, I think the same thing was going on in the time of Yeshua. I mean, the leaders, the Sanhedrin and the sages wanted to be in control. They, that's, that's what they wanted. Here was this 
Here was this country bumpkin from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Walking around, he, does he have any rabbinical uh, uh, qualifications? I mean, who taught him? And, and, he, and, and he chooses as his disciples these unlearned, untrained fishermen of all things, and even tax collectors and other kinds of lowlifes, and he's walking around the countryside causing a huge uproar. I mean, you, you, can, you can get a little feeling for their, their consternation. So, you know, what, what people will persecute, for, persecute you for righteousness' sake. Moreover, if we follow the pattern of the, of the Beatitudes that we've mentioned before, we see that uh, righteousness in this case is not something given per se, but something possessed. In other words, it's, it's justification is a gift of God. So this isn't talking about justification. It's not entirely devoid from justification or separated. But it's not something that is a gift. It's something that's possessed. The poor are not given poverty, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they shall be given poorness. No. The meek are not given meekness. The, poor, the pure in heart are not given purity. And the peacemakers are not given peace. Each one of these qualities are something that they already possess. Likewise, the emphasis is not that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are given righteousness, but that each of these qualities are the evident character of those who are true followers after God. The metaphor of hungering and thirsting is, is worthy of further consideration, especially as it pertains to righteousness. The righteous are not here con congratulated as though they had obtained something in its fullness. Blessed are all of you who are truly righteous. That's not what it says. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness, which means what? You don't have enough of it. You don't consider yourself satiated with righteousness. Being hungry and thirsting for righteousness means that one is well aware of one's need for more. Righteousness must ever be sought. It is the goal that lies ahead. As Paul remarks, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Messiah Yeshua. And again he writes in verse 14 of Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. While it is certainly clear that those who have put their faith in Yeshua have been declared righteous and have been forever absolved of the guilt and penalty of sin, this reality causes an unquenchable thirst in the soul for conformity to Messiah. We may never consider that our race is finished that somehow we are allowed to sit idle as though the crown has already been awarded. Rather, the inner working of the Ruach so moves and motivates us that we strive to become what we have already been declared to be, that is, righteous in Messiah. We should remember the message of our Master regarding the Pharisee and the tax collector, in which the Pharisee who considered himself righteous is in fact not, and the one who knows his own shortcomings, quote, went down to his house righteous. Thus, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are blessed, not those who think they have attained it. And again, we see the blessing coming upon those who may have been marginalized within that community. You know, you could see the, the Pharisees, and again, I don't say all the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees strutting their way in the public square with their phylacteries huge. Uh, uh, I use the word phylactery. It's not the proper word. 
uh, tefillin huge and uh, tzitzit uh, uh, dangling way down. And they're muttering their, their blessings and going as though they're these pious people. And then you see them looking down their nose, so to speak, at the commoner who probably doesn't know all of the laws and probably isn't fully aware of all the ins and outs of purities and you know first and second and third level of purities and, and probably wouldn't uh, uh, have everything right at the table if one of these Pharisees would come in. And this person is full aware, fully aware of their need. And they come to God and say, I really don't have anything to claim your grace, but I seek it. And I hunger for it. And I thirst for it. And God says, yeah, that's the heart that I'm looking for. That's the contrite heart. It says, for they shall be satisfied. The verb is future passive. And once again, God is the divine agent, the one who brings the satisfaction. While the future tense may indeed emphasize the eschatological reversal, will be satisfied in the future, in which the hungry and thirsty in, in, the, in this life are fully satisfied in the world to come. It does not negate the fact that the future has invaded the present in the coming of Messiah and the work of the Ruach in establishing his reign among his people. It may be as well that the messianic banquet is envisioned at which the elect from all the nations will dine at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it isn't only that we have satisfaction in the future, we have a taste of it now. But the point here is that hungering and thirsting after righteousness brings a real satisfaction of the soul because God sees to it that the soul is satisfied and he alone is able to do this work. Nothing is more clear when we consider the human plight that mankind in general is constantly striving for some measure of significance of being satisfied at the end of the day that one's life and efforts had some genuine meaning. Yet in our own fallen minds we fail to realize that true satisfaction begins with knowing God and pleasing Him. We spend ourselves in finding ways to be satisfied but find our souls constantly longing for what seems always just beyond our grasp. Here the words of our Master direct us to the foundational aspect of being truly satisfied. It is when we drink from the streams of His delight that we discover our true significance. And it is this that we are in, in this that we are enabled to fulfill the very purpose of our existence. The soul that longs for him is satisfied, even if this longing continues to increase. It is in this striving that we are at once fulfilled and ever becoming. Maybe I wrote too many pages on just a few words, but I think they're just packed. And I think we have hardly scratched the surface. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, again, if our scheme is right, this is the center. Um, this is the showing of mercy is the key to all of the rest. The word merciful translates the Greek elemanas, and it's the adjectival form, actually, of um, elios, mercy. In the Septuagint, our word regularly translates chanun, which, again, means kind or gracious or merciful. Luke's parallel to our saying is, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Where the word is a different word, oiktrimnon, which, again, is the adjective of oiktrio. And it, it primarily means to be compassionate. And these are all overlapping terms, aren't they? I mean, they, they're not cut and dry. They, they overlap each other. In the Septuagint, Oiktirman most often translates rachum or racham. By the way, the, the basic meaning of that word is, word is womb. Or, or, or the broader meaning is lap. 
and and uh, to have to love to have mercy on someone to show compassion why do you suppose that word uh, gained that meaning well that's because you know you have a mother who's constantly holding this little baby uh, you know here in, in that region of uh, you know she, baby sitting on her lap and so to, to show compassion as a mother would show an infant compassion or should at least the point of our master's words are apparent one who shows other others mercy will themselves be shown mercy this is also a theme in the rabbinic literature we read in uh, the Bavli Shabbat 151b, whoever has pity on people will obtain pity from heaven. As long as you are merciful, it says in uh, the uh, Tosefta, the merciful one is merciful to you. Matthew is very much taken with the concept of mercy and it forms a central theme in his gospel, which is why I think it's appropriate that it form a central theme in this smaller a form of Matthew's gospel, that is the Beatitudes. Yeshua regularly teaches on the need to show mercy and demonstrates mercy on his own actions, or by his own actions. Yet the concept of mercy is in need of redefining in our times. Being merciful does not mean turning a blind eye to that which needs correction or to the base desires of some. Parents who give in to their children just because, quote, everyone is doing it, they are not demonstrating mercy. Mercy evidences itself to those in genuine need, not in giving in to those who are manipulative for their own gains. This is because mercy is tied to righteousness and justice. When the Almighty punishes the wicked, His mercy is not diminished, nor could it be. Likewise, hand-feeding the wild animals may appear on the surface as merciful, but in reality it is detrimental to their continuing existence. Giving handouts to the vagrant may seem an act of mercy, but it may actually be enabling him to remain in his sorry state. So mercy is forestalled unless, unless it's combined with wisdom. And that's the problem that we have in our society. But I think there are a lot of people who want to be merciful. They just have no idea what mercy is. I, I struggle. We've talked about this before in, uh, in our classes. I mean, you know, you pass this. I saw a fellow downtown the other day when I was down at the, at the print shop. I, I mean, this guy was the most despicable looking fellow I have seen in a long time. I mean, I'm telling you, this guy shuffled along in the sorriest state I think I've ever seen a human being. And you just, you think your, you know, your heart just kind of, kind of melts inside it. You think, man, how could someone create in the image of God? I mean, what can we do for this guy? And uh, my suspicions are, and maybe it's because I'm hard-hearted, but my suspicions are that people have tried to help him a lot. Because I, I just, I reason to myself, if I was moved that way, I'm sure others were moved this way. He probably doesn't want help. Well, I think you understand what I'm saying. We have to have wisdom. Mercy, so-called mercy that is dispersed without wisdom probably isn't mercy. And unfortunately, we find ourselves defining our spirituality by how we show mercy. You know, we feel bad about ourselves if we haven't given charity. So we try to find some way to give charities to feel good about ourselves. That's not charity. You don't give charity to feel good about yourself. So that's a whole other side of it. That's not what he's talking about. What our master enjoins upon us here is the willingness to show mercy to those in genuine need, to those who are, for whatever reason, in great need of, of forbearance and understanding. They may be suffering under the consequences of their own sinful choices, but if they are seeking to change and to overcome their troubles, they need to be shown mercy. They need a helping hand extended without concomitant judgment. That's hard to do. It's hard to reach out to someone who is down and out because they've made stupid and sinful choices and not say, look, I'll help you, but I think, frankly, you're an idiot, but I'll, I'll help you. That's not showing mercy. 
Our master's words here may, however, envision more than the practical reality of consequences. That is, that people who show mercy to others are far more likely to be shown mercy themselves. In other words, is that the motivation to show mercy? I mean, it, it could be read, blessed are the merciful. I mean, you ought to really show mercy because someday you're going to need mercy. Well, there's, there's something to that. There's something to that. What goes around comes around. You know, if you show mercy to others, they will show mercy to you. If you're an arrogant nose in the air and always judging everyone, and we've all experienced this in our workplaces. I mean, I have. Haven't you? I mean, there's always the boss that you just, everybody hates. And the reason everybody hates him is because he's hateable. And there's the boss that basically everybody works their tail off for, and that's because the boss is, you know, he understands, he, he, he works with you, he works, he works for you, he supports you, and, and, and he gets a lot of work done by those who are under his management because that's the way he is. Not always, doesn't always work out that way, but oftentimes it's true. But there's more going on here than that. Um, while this is true, that is, those who are merciful are shown mercy, the picture of the eschaton, the last days, may likewise be in view. Those who show mercy do so because they have themselves experienced the mercy of the Almighty. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.